Hello and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Bergeon of McEwen University uh, from the Great White North of Canada. And today we're going to be going back in time long, long ago to 1977 to a galaxy far, far away taking a look at Star Wars, a science fiction classic. And I know some of the purists are going to go, wait, no, it's not quite science fiction. It's really more science fantasy. Yeah, I know. But for, you know, our purposes today, that's about as far as we have to take it. A science fiction classic. Uh, this is part of a series of lectures that I'm giving to uh, my students at McEwen for a course on intro to film narrative. And we're going to be focusing on editing today. So here we go. For those who pay attention to the copyright notice in my slide deck, which you can see on YouTube, my podcast people, you can't see this, but I always have a copyright notice, and it usually includes my copyright for the content that I've generated, um, but a copyright as well for the Norton Publishing Company because of our textbook looking at movies in Introduction to Film by Richard Barsom and Dave Monahan. And the reason that I don't have Barsom and Monahan in there this week uh, is because I'm only using quotations, if you will, from looking at movies, and the weight of the information is a synthesis of two secondary sources, two secondary sources, two books about Star Wars. That's the difference between primary sources and secondary sources. If you've ever wondered, no one's ever explained it to you. In academia, if we have a primary source, uh, then in this particular case, it's Star Wars. That's our primary source. That's the object of our, our inquiry. And then books that talk about the primary source, so books that talk about Star Wars, are our secondary sources. And I have two that I used extensively uh, in preparing today's lecture. Uh, the first is The Editing of Star Wars, How Cutting Created a Classic by Linton Davies. And uh, it's, a, it's a great book, a great study of uh, editing, wonderful film analysis. My only complaint is that he consistently spells Vader wrong, but hey, at least he does it consistently. Um, and then the BFI film classics, Star Wars by Will Brooker. And I love that there is a BFI film classics book of Star Wars because this series, the BFI film classics, is seriously reserved for the best of the best. And uh, this was such a surprise to me, not only because I received it as a Christmas gift, but because I was surprised that somebody had done a BFI film classics. I always kind of thought of BFI as being a bit too snobby for that, but I love BFI film classics books. I collect them. When my wife and I were in London, I made her go with me to the BFI building, and although we couldn't explore most of the space, boy, I'll tell you, we rocked the gift shop. So, um, I was, but I, like I say, I was surprised that there was a BFI film classics book because my experience of Star Wars and film analysis mirrored what Brooker's obviously was. Brooker says at the beginning of the book that cinema scholarship seems embarrassed by Star Wars. My students were shocked that I had included it. Some anyway, some students were shocked to find Star Wars in the syllabus for this course. Cinema scholarship seems embarrassed by Star Wars, says Brooker. Embarrassed that a movie series so popular, successful and influential is also apparently so childishly simple to the extent that it primarily discusses the film. So cinema scholarship primarily discusses the film in relation to its audiences, special effects, merchandising, 
ownership or influence on the studio system, rather than in terms of narrative, performance, cinematography, direction, or editing. So, in other words, in you know all these other things, but not cinematic language. Academia rarely engages with Star Wars as a film text as opposed to a cultural phenomenon. Any discussion of its themes, story, and character tend to be either patronizing or contemptuous. And that was my experience as well. Um, I had taught Star Wars as film in a course before Booker's book came across my radar. And I had, I had the experience of going through... Uh, the McEwen Library System, the University of Alberta's library system, looking at film book after film book, film history after film history, and finding that no one had really done anything approaching film analysis uh, through cinematic language, film form, of Star Wars. Uh, instead, they would, you know, it was like it, they would they would say something about the special effects, and it was a landmark for special effects, or it was the movie that cemented the blockbuster. If Jaws and Spielberg, you know, started that, then Star Wars was the movie that cemented it. Um, and there are a number of film critics who think that Star Wars and Jaws and movies like that ruined cinema. Um, but, you know, I, I wondered, how can this be, given that this movie was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and scored seven wins. Now, amongst among those nominations, I mean, no big surprise, production design, uh, you know, John Williams' score, but Lucas was nominated for Best Director. The movie was nominated for Best Picture. So it wasn't like it was just the, the things that we might usually associate with Star Wars. It was being nominated for the big awards and one that it was nominated for and one was editing so i thought what an opportunity right to talk about star wars and to talk about star wars in light of editing especially with linton davies book uh, which i think is just it's an excellent study of, of of the film and i'll say more about why in just a moment but what is editing is the process art and technique by which the editor selects arranges and assembles the visual sound and special effects to tell a story and the, uh, the, our, our, our textbook gives a ratio of like 20 minutes to one for like if they're assembling footage. Uh, but there are movies where the, the, the number of, of like the number of, of minutes shot compared to how much actually ends up on the screen is much higher. Um, and Star Wars was one of those movies where they had a lot of raw footage and not everything ended up on the screen. The film editor decides what shots to use and how to use them. And this is a massive responsibility because you can have a screenplay. And then as we learned with Raiders of the Lost Ark, you get to making the movie and the stuntman says, hey, I want to crawl under a truck. And suddenly you have a lengthy sequence of film that will need to be edited that has no correlation to the screenplay. So the editor may feel a bit adrift. But the editor's responsibilities are spatial relationships between shots, like does this all add up in terms of where everyone was in the last shot versus the one that I'm watching now? And if you've ever watched a fight scene and it seemed really chaotic, uh, sometimes that's because the editor could not map the spatial relationships. And that isn't always the editor's fault. Sometimes that's the director or the cinematographer's fault. Uh, temporal relationships between shots, um, how quick... Should the edit be? Should they do a jump cut where they take some of the time out? Um, and the overall rhythm of the film, how it paces, that's all on the editor. 
We think about the screenplay as this end-all be-all of how story gets constructed, but editing is where story is compiled, cinematic story is compiled for the final draft, as it were. Uh, no shock, we edit final drafts for papers and for stories, and we edit final drafts for film as well, it seems. Now, with Star Wars, there were three editors, Richard Chu, Marsha Lucas and Paul Hirsch. And they were called in after the first editor, John Jimson, was booted off the film. Now, don't get the impression that Jimson was a crap editor. He wasn't. He'd worked with people like Hitchcock. It's just that he did things in a very standard Hollywood way. And um, Chu, Lucas, and Hirsch were brought on to take what Jimson had done to that point and revise it so that the film would be punched up. Now, there are a number of videos on the internet <clears throat> that say that, you know, Star Wars was saved in the edit. There is a video that's called How Star Wars Was Saved in the Edit. And I've read, uh, there's an article by a guy named Jim Nelson called How Marsha Lucas Saved Star Wars. And it you know, sort of, it, I, I think it inflates her role, um, uh, which is good because her role has been diminished in certain cases. One of the definitive books on the making of Star Wars, uh, J.W. Rinsler's The Making of Star Wars, does not give a ton of attention to Marsha Lucas's contributions. This is something that I'll, I'll expand upon in just a little while. Um, but the idea that there was nothing there to begin with is ridiculous. Uh, a good editor cannot save utter crap. If, if a film has been poorly shot, if a film is absolute garbage, the editor can, can make it better. There's no, there's no doubt about that. But the idea that, that what was there was just raw garbage is, I think, a reaction to Lucas as this entity who controls Lucasfilm and the fact that he... You know, when he did get back around to to directing Star Wars movies again, because he didn't direct any of the original trilogy except for the first film. And then when he finally did get back to directing, uh, he directed the prequels, which a lot of people think are really bad films. <clears throat> and from the perspective of cinematic language, uh, a number of moments in those films are atrocious. There are lots of ways to uh, approach, um, you know, you, you can love a movie. You can, I've, I've said this before, you know, we, we can love the prequels. I love Sword and the Sorcerer. It's not a great film. Um, we can love the prequels and still admit that they're not particularly good uh, examples of cinematic language. But I think that Star Wars is. But I don't want to be one of these, you know, I don't want to be on this bandwagon of how Star Wars was saved in the edit because I don't, I don't completely buy that. And I'll explain why as we go through, because you'll see how elements of mise-en-scene that had to have been there when they were shooting are part of why the editing could do what it does, ultimately. <clears throat> Linton Davies in the editing of Star Wars says that the impact of editing on a film often appears to be dismissed as almost incalculable. Most people don't approach analysis of film by looking at editing. And again, Rinsler in his, uh, you know, making of Star Wars, I think gives uh, short shrift to the editing process. I don't think he talks enough about it. Um, he talks about just about everything else with the film, but he doesn't talk about editing near as much as I think he should have. So I'm thankful for Linton Davies. And I'm also thankful for those videos, like how Star Wars was saved in the edit. I love that that video exists. I love that I can go and I can see a very succinct um, breakdown of where editing 
may have done some really amazing things with the narrative. I won't for a moment say that I think that whatever was there before uh, Chu and Lucas and Hirsch were brought on board was was super fantastic. Um, near as we can tell, there were some really, really great narrative decisions made. And I'll talk about those as well uh, in, in the rest of the lecture. Um, but uh, there's little attempt... Davies says, ever made to quantify and examine the effects of editing in a practical fashion. This is perhaps because editing requires such a special and particular attention to be paid to it in order to understand its workings. Like we just don't really pay attention to editing. And if it's done really well, a sequence will feel like it's a single camera shot, even when it's not a long take. Whereas production design, cinematography, or special effects jump out at the viewer, Davies says, Editing tends towards the opposite, giving rise to its reputation as the invisible art of cinema. So editing is tough to analyze. It takes a lot of work. It's, it's far more bitsy. Now, when we think about editing and we think about Star Wars, we might think about the moment when one of the sand people, one of the Tusken Raiders, attacks Luke. And they do this quick reversal thing to get just a little bit more footage out of the, you know, the actor raising this stick up in the air uh, over and over again. And so what they did is they ran the film forward and then they ran the film backwards and they got a little bit more of out of the Tusken Raider. Or uh, they may also be aware, you know, there's those people who watch movies for continuity errors. And uh, and I suppose that's an interesting hobby. I just don't really get 100% why people do it. But they may notice that the um, sequence where Luke is at Obi-Wan's house is out of order. That at the beginning of that sequence, Luke is working on C-3PO. And then C-3PO says he's going to shut down. And then Luke and Obi-Wan have this conversation about the lightsaber. And then they turn R2-D2 on. And suddenly Luke is over working on C-3PO again. What's going on there? Well, when they went to edit that sequence, they were like, okay, narratively, it makes more sense to have this conversation about Luke's father happen before we get to Leia, which is narratively compelling. It's moving the narrative forward. So we want to do this backstory thing before we get to the let's move the story forward thing again. Uh, as Davies says, editing is storytelling in the most efficient and engaging way possible. The final rewrite of the script, as it were. And here we see the effects of that. The final rewrite of the script, as it were. And it is difficult to extract what were specifically editing decisions and which were enforced by the shooting draft and its interpretation by the rest of the crew. And what I love about this quotation is that Davies is highlighting how collaborative the work of filmmaking is. That an, that an edit may be the decision, not of the director or the screenwriter, or even of the editor potentially, but somebody else uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the crew. Um, somebody just makes a suggestion or something happens with a particular take and they're like, okay, well, that's going to change the way that that paces uh, in the film. So it's this collaborative thing and it's why I hesitate to be like, Marsha Lucas was responsible for saving Star Wars or that, you know, George Lucas's genius is the only thing that makes Star Wars great. Davies makes the choice of, of a metonym for Richard Chu, Marsha Lucas, and, and Paul Hirsch by just saying Hirsch. He's like, I know there were three people, but I'm just always going to say Hirsch. I'll probably say all three names every time. 
Um, but uh, I, I might also just say Hershet points because I, I, you know, you could get into like the who did what, who was responsible for which part, and we know uh, who was responsible for certain aspects. Um, according to Davies, Paul Hirsch was responsible for the last five months of editing, so that's why he chooses to metonymically state that you know it's it, it, he you know Hirsch is the editor in that particular case. But I'm always a little hesitant to you know give grand praise to a single individual when it comes to filmmaking uh, because it's usually a, a, a collaborative effort. Davies says that the that George Lucas described the underlying goal of Star Wars by saying it should be fun, exciting, and inspirational. And he says that an analysis of the film's editing will be framed within this context, looking at how cutting is used to enhance and draw out those these emotions to the greatest extent possible. And this is one of the other reasons I like Davies' book, is because he he comes at this with a with an attention to what was this film supposed to be? What what is the goal of this particular movie? Like if we go to a movie and it doesn't match our expectations, and then we assess it with a, like a false set, set of expectations, we're not really meeting that movie where it lives. We're just going, this is what I wanted, and they didn't do it, so, eh, you know. Um, but, you know, and analyzing the movie through film form forces us, I think, to look at what the underlying goals of a film were. So uh, Davies breaks down his book into three, he has some other chapters as well, but three particular chapters on aspects of editing that he then illustrates using Star Wars. Uh, and we begin with rhythm, and then we move to parallel action and then montage. But I'm going to do a little edit of, of my own. Uh, we're going to go rhythm, montage, parallel action because uh, it, it's going to work better for a conclusion for today's lecture. So let's start with rhythm. What is rhythm? I've got rhythm. Editing uh, determines the duration of a shot and the editor controls a film film's rhythm by varying the duration of shots. And uh, I, I did a, a little study of a sequence in Star Wars where, you know, I wanted to look at it just for rhythm. I wanted to sort of pace it out. Uh, and so this is the scene where Luke and Han are masquerading as stormtroopers. Um, and then they go into uh, to where, um, like, they're still in the Millennium Falcon at the beginning of this. Uh, and then they go into this, uh, this hangar bay office and there's a, a gunfight. So it starts with a... Uh, a single shot, a single shot, a single take um, that lasts 42 seconds of a crew of stormtroopers and Imperial officers, or not officers, but Imperial workers, um, getting ready to go on board the Millennium Falcon to sweep it for any hidden uh, stuff, anything that they might have missed in just walking around. And uh, that, that entire shot, that's one shot, takes 42 seconds. The next series of shots, and we've got five of them here, moving back and forth from uh, uh, an Imperial worker up in this hangar bay, um, I don't know what I want to call it, like the office, I don't know. They're overlooking the hangar bay. And, you know, it comes to the thing and, and asks, you know, like, why aren't you at your, you know, why aren't you responding? And then goes to the window to look, uh, Luke or Han 
difficult to say which of them it is, uh, taps the side of his helmet saying, oh, I, you know, something wrong with my, my communicator. So we've had three shots at that point. The fourth shot goes back to the guy looking down into the hangar bay. And then the fifth shot is him opening the door. And that's a total of 23 seconds. So, you know, we start, we start that out with a uh, single shot of 42 seconds moving to six shots that are a total of 23 seconds. You can see how this is pacing faster and faster. And then finally, six more shots that are five seconds in total. So we've got six shots that were 23 seconds. Now we've got six shots that are five seconds in total. And that's when Chewie... Uh, smokes the guy when he comes through the door. Uh, the the other guy who's sitting at the desk jumps up and he gets shot by Han or Luke. And that just goes by very, very rapidly and it happens so quickly that it feels like a single uh, shot in its own way. So editing, uh, doing the rhythm, it's like slow with that first shot that's, you know, 42 seconds and then 23 seconds with six shots and then five seconds with this last thing. And Davies talks a lot about the average shot length and that if you take a look at acts one, two, and three of the film, the average shot shot length gets quicker as it moves towards the end of the movie. He says this about editing and rhythm. The function of rhythm can be described as being to create a sense of flow across a film. This flow is the embodiment of cycles of tension and release faster or slower rhythm, which affect the viewer physiologically, emotionally, and cognitively. And I've seen movies where they don't do tension and release. It's just fast. And it's a very unsatisfying viewing. It's a very unsatisfying viewing. Those of you who thought that Moulin Rouge was too quick in its edits need to remember that after we've gone through that barrage of rapid edits, the film does slow down and the edits come much slower. There is a, a rhythm to the editing of that film. On the subject of rhythm, I wanted to talk about the special edition, which is the only one that I'm able to give to my students to watch, because it's the only one that we can license appropriately, because I don't own the DVD from the 90s. That was the last time that they made the original available in a digital format. Uh, it's one of my life goals to track it down and use that instead. Um, because, and it's not a, I hate the special edition because uh, of the Han shot first thing. And if you don't know Star Wars, I'll very briefly just uh, explain this. Um, in the original 77 film, Han Solo shoots Greedo, the guy who's having the conversation with him in the cantina, before Greedo shoots. So he shoots him ostensibly in cold blood. When they made the special edition, it was decided that that, you know, Han's a hero, heroes don't shoot first, and it's like ignoring his narrative arc, which is that he's not a hero when they first meet him, he's a scoundrel. Um, but uh, they did this very clunky digital uh, edit of that moment uh, where Han, like Greedo shoots at him, and they edited Harrison Ford's head to kind of kick to the side, and... Uh, and then he shoots Greedo in response. And there, you know, there's all sorts of fan outrage over that. And 
I have a, I used to have a shirt even that said Han shot first. It's, it's one of those things that it bothers me because it's like, why'd you have to mess with that? Um, but as a film scholar, as someone who looks at Star Wars, not only through the lens of a fan, cause I am a fan. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, looking from it, from a film formalism perspective, the special editions did all sorts of damage to the film in areas of film, uh, language. And Lucas should have known better. He was a better filmmaker back in the seventies. I mean, he, he did, he did some great work. Um, and that's a, a big part of what Will Brooker argues in his book is that Lucas was a great director. He was a great documentary director. Um, and he had made even some experimental, uh, films, films that were off the beaten track as it were indie films. Um, and when we get the special edition, we've got this weird thing that, that the rhythm of the film is slowed down by all these digital insertions, these extra scenes of Moss Eisley, this spaceport. And it's Lucas getting to finally represent Moss Eisley the way he saw it in his head, because, you know, they couldn't do it back in the 70s just the way that it was in his head. And that's neither here nor there to me. You want to put in extra buildings and extra creatures, that's totally fine, so long as you don't change the rhythm of the film, because the rhythm of the film was really good as it was. What the extra moments do is it just slows down this, 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 uh, this moment that Luke and Obi-Wan and the droids show up in Moss Eisley. And this is also, and this is not related to editing, but I'm putting it in here because it just drives me nuts. And it's related to something Brooker talks about a lot. He talks about how the original 77 film was shot in cinema verite style, that Lucas was using the kind of filmmaking techniques that you would use if you wanted to like you would you often you, you often use cinema verite in documentary because you're shooting real stuff right and if you want to port that over to a fictional movie then you have to position your camera in such a way that it's not perfect and so in the original film there's always people walking in front of the camera when obi-wan's doing his whole you know these aren't the droids you're looking for in the special edition lucas replaced a guy in a in a you know, a guy in a big furry outfit who walks by, um, with this dinosaur looking alien creature, which, which completely takes up the frame for more than it should. I want to say like, I haven't timed it out, but it's a good second or so that it's just like, that's nothing but that. And it's completely obscuring the action in the background. And okay, you know, in cinema verite, maybe this giant thing walked in front of the camera, but if you're controlling it digitally, Make it smaller so we don't lose everything in the background. It just seems so ostentatious, and it's like, look, we did a digital creature uh, kind of moment. But it's 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 about it's about film language being broken in a way. Like it, that, that 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 these are not improvements; they're just insertions. My biggest beef with the the rhythm, uh, the, or sorry, the, my biggest beef with Han shot first is that um, the the digital or the special edition put content back into the film that they'd taken out for pacing reasons that they'd taken out because it ruined the rhythm of the film and it worked like this so you have the scene with greedo in the bar han shoots him then he goes and he in the special edition meets up with jabba the hut who if you're paying close attention says all the same stuff that Greedo does. And that's because way back in 77, they ascertained that the job of the hut scene wasn't working. 
There was something that just wasn't working about it. And this is where uh, I get a little itchy when people are like, Marsha Lucas saved Star Wars. And I'm like, yeah, but she nearly wrecked it too in 77 because she was arguing for putting scenes back in that had slowed down the pace that, had, that, that were like inhibiting the rhythm. So there are scenes that were taken out very early on where Luke is hanging out with his friends on Tatooine. Uh, and she argued for uh, one of those to be kept in the film. And then she also argued for the job of the hut scene to be retained in the film. Um, and so, you know, film is a collaborative process. And that's not me going like, Marsha Lucas is a terrible person. And it's just me going, okay, she didn't single-handedly save the film because of a really cool decision that she made that we'll talk about in a little while. She also made so, she also almost made some pretty rough decisions, and here's why this doesn't work uh, in the special edition in particular. It might have if they'd done it in '77. It's because Greedo's lines were different before they cut the Jabba of the Hut content. Once they cut that for pacing, Greedo was given the subtitles because it's all in in the Salian language, right? So then they gave him the subtitles that were the exposition that Jabba the Hut would have delivered. What that does in the special edition is it repeats it, but it also slows everything down. And Han says, we need to get going, you know, because we, 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 need, we, need, we need to get on the Millennium Falcon. And he's just had a conversation with Jabba the Hutt where it's like, ah, everything's okay, right? Like, I'll bring you some money. So really, he's not in any hurry anymore. It's only in the 77 original where there is no Jabba the Hutt conversation that that line makes any sense. And so in terms of the film's rhythm, the special edition is not a travesty because Han doesn't shoot first. It's not a travesty because the first digital version of Jabba looked terrible. It's, if it's a travesty, it's a travesty because it's a, it's, a, it's a glitch in editing. It's a glitch in looking at this film as film and going, okay, editing is still part of this. Just because we have all these great digital tools doesn't mean we should be ignoring one of the foundational things that made uh, the first film so great. But there are other aspects of rhythm as well. When they went to, when uh, Chu and Lucas and Hirsch went to re-edit what had been done by Jimson, the, the, the footage that they had, um, they moved certain scenes around to change the way that they felt. So, for example, Leia's uh, capture was put earlier in the film, closer to when Vader is being so menacing by killing the captain of the ship, to heighten the danger that she's in. You know, these are narrative decisions, editing decisions, narrative decisions. Same thing with the stormtroopers locating evidence of the droids. That was originally later in the film and it was moved to an earlier point so that there was a conveyance of the of of again, danger of of highlighting that, you know, those the, those droids are are being pursued and now Luke's been drawn into this net as well. So the way that that works out is also a part of rhythm, also a part of pacing. Uh, the other part of editing that Linton Davies talks about is montage. And I like his discussion of it because it sits squarely in the middle of um, where our textbook is at. Looking at movies differentiates between the, the various terms related to montage by distinguishing montage editing from a montage sequence. And Davies says, okay, yeah, way back when montage meant a certain thing. It meant a certain thing to French filmmakers. It meant, it meant an even more specific thing to Russian filmmakers. Um, and those techniques were very, very particular. And if we're going to get 
really bitsy with our jargon, then yes, montage is something different than um, what Davies ultimately ends up talking about. But his contention, and I agree with him, is that we've absorbed the techniques of Russian montage into standard filmmaking. So people like George Lucas were aware of techniques that Russian filmmakers used, like the Kuleshov effect, which is you know used in this sequence where Luke rolls up to his aunt and uncle's farm and it's been burned out by the stormtroopers. And both Brooker and, and, and Davies talk about this, that, uh, that this is, you know, Brooker says that this is like an homage to the film The Searchers, it was a classic Western. So Lucas is um, make, giving homage to some classic film here. Um, but it's also uh, an, an example that Davies cites of the Kuleshov effect, where they took, you know, a man's stare and they edited it against a bunch of different objects and people uh, interpreted it interpreted what his expression meant, what the man's expression meant differently based on whatever image came next. So it's like guys stare and then an object, guys stare, different object. And the object changed the way that people interpreted the emotional affect of the uh, subject. So in this moment, um, the Kuleshov effect is being used with Mark Hamill staring at the burnt corpses of his aunt and uncle. And reportedly, uh, Hamill wanted to do like a ah, kind of moment, right? He wanted to, to have this, mo- this moment of cathartic acting. And Lucas, shockingly, <laughs> because apparently he didn't really ask for restraint most of the time, but apparently Lucas insisted on a restrained performance. This is what uh, Davies says. Um, and, uh, and so what happens is, is that the audience knows what Luke is feeling based upon the shot that precedes it. When we see the burnt corpses of his aunt and uncle, we don't need him to freak out. In fact, the icy stare arguably works better. But this is a result of editing, and this is what montage is about, is placing um, different shots together to produce different emotional responses. And we've been talking a bit about this, right? That, That emotional response related to the art of filmmaking is an area that I think is, is, is really interesting, very fascinating, but too often, I think in literary circles, especially we go treating the film like it's a moving novel, at which point we start to talk about symbolism and whatnot. And I'm thinking films, not like a book, a book isn't edited like film is. There isn't this same thing where we're moving from a close up to a wide shot to a, you know, a different wide shot to a medium pan to another close up to a wide shot and how those affect us as the viewer has an, a, a greater level of immediacy and consequently emotional impact than a book necessarily can. That's not to say that that makes one better than the other. It's just to say that, that it's, it's part of how film as a medium impacts us as individuals. We cannot necessarily control our emotional response to, for example, a jump scare. Whereas, you know, if a monster jumps out in a book, well, <laughs> we, we, we're not going to necessarily jump in our seat. In fact, it is impossible, I think, to have a jump scare in a book. It's almost impossible to have them in comic books. Montage is also about, like, taking out moments to, like, create ellipses in time, right? That, that you, you cut some time out. And this is a, a, an example of very, very brief ellipses where 
Obi-Wan swings the lightsaber in the cantina and the guy cries out, we don't ever see the lightsaber actually hack anything off. There's no, right? There's no limb goes flying. There's just a limb on the ground. Um, and, but we know what's happened. We do something that's called closure where we put the, we evidence together, the evidence together that's in front of us because we're pattern recognition animals and we just do that automatically. We go, oh, what just happened? Okay, well, put it all together, right? Even though we don't see it actually happen, we infer that it has. And Davies says this, the meaning of what is shown, I've got that as show, my bad. The meaning of what is shown is constructed not simply by what's represented on screen, but by the manner in which it is fragmented through editing. It is what gets left out in essence that becomes part of the making of meaning in certain cases, right? Um, what gets what gets omitted, what accelerates uh, the, the moments from one to another. We move on to the area of editing that I think if, if people know something about it and they, you know, they know more about montage than that's just the thing that happens at the end of a Grey's Anatomy episode, then they may know about parallel action. Um, but I think parallel action is one of those areas where once you know about it, it changes the way that you, you see films. Um, and again, I'm using Davies here. I know I'm just quoting him like crazy. All apologies to Linton Davies. You should buy his book anyway. I have not even begun to mine everything that's in there. It's just, it's, I, I highlighted so much stuff when I read that book. Um, but he says this parallel action technique where separate storylines unfold in tandem and the editor goes back and forth between the different locations. Meanwhile, you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch is a powerful way of maintaining interest in both sides of the story and heightens the excitement where the, when the separate strands inevitably collide. And one of my favorite examples of parallel action and one of my favorite examples of that wasn't like the book is from MGM's The Wizard of Oz, where the Wicked Witch of the West is the villain that we cut to over and over again. The film keeps cutting to the witch. And so she's this, she's this ever-present danger. And that is nothing like Baum's book. In Baum's book, she's one more episodic moment among many picaresque episodic moments. But the MGM film reminded us and as Davies says here, you know, as the, this powerful way of maintaining interest in both sides of the story created a powerful interest in the Wicked Witch of the West, making her a threat from the moment Dorothy arrives in Oz all the way until I'm melting happens. And we get that same kind of parallel action, although it, it's far more developed because uh, Lucas wasn't working with a source text where, you know, Vader was only there for a few moments. Vader was important to Lucas's big story uh, from the get-go. And so we get this, these moves of parallel action. And this is where Davies comes into conversation with Brooker. Uh, Brooker says that the two positions that we've got here, the rebels and the, and the empire, um, represent two different, um, modes, you might say. And he titles the chapters for those dirt for the, for the rebels. I mean, just look at that Tatooine. It's dirty. Uh, when they talk about the mise-en-scene for Star Wars, the actors would roll around in the dirt before they'd start a take. When they were doing Tatooine scenes, roll around in the dirt for a little while. Okay, we're ready to go. So dirty, cluttered, right? And then the Empire is represented by a chapter called Order. And that's the Death Star. 
these clean lines, everything's shiny and polished. And this is what Brooker has to say. Cinema, uh, sorry, no, wrong quote. I already told you that one. He says, the rebels are associated with documentary improvisation, customization, and the make-do camaraderie of the Hollywood war film and Western. So that's, that's Brooker talking about like how the camera works when we're on Tatooine and when we're with the rebels. He's talking about the mise-en-scene to some degree. The Empire draws on a colder, more disciplined use of human figures in formal patterns, enjoying technology for its reflective surfaces rather than for the creative potential of its inner workings and returning to the bleak structures of both THX films, was one of um, Lucas's early projects, which in turn draw on the European uh, science fiction of Alphaville. So these clean lines, the sleek, polished surfaces, um, and that the parallel action isn't just about moving back and forth between Luke and the Rebels and Vader and the Death Star, but it's also about moving back and forth between these different approaches to mise-en-scene, these different approaches to camera work, because there's more sort of guerrilla tactics, documentary style camera work that gets employed on Tatooine, whereas there is a more formal and sophisticated camera work that gets used on the Death Star until the rebels show up and start shooting shit up. And then it's like shaky cam, right? It's handheld camera for the fight in the detention center. And this is this is technique that we've talked about before, which is cross-cutting, cutting together two or more lines of action that occur simultaneously at different locations. And cross-cutting allows for the film to do time jumps, but it also allows for the film to put things side by side that need to be associated with each other for emotional impact. Too often we're watching movies and cross-cutting occurs and there's some idiot with a stopwatch going, I don't really think that timelines roll up. And it's like, that's not really what they're doing this for. This isn't happening in real time, man. This is happening in a way that's meant to elicit strong emotional responses because then you're having a good time. Then you're having, you know, the, the time that George Lucas wanted you to have at this rip-roaring adventure story. And the parallel action used in Star Wars, this is Linton Davies again, is very much that of the pursuers and the pursued, with the audience able to follow the chase between the rebels and the Empire, despite them being galaxies apart. Continually cutting back to the Imperial forces also serves to maintain a sense of threat and urgency throughout the film. And this gets done in spades at the end of the movie. And many of you may already know this. This is sort of widely known if you're a Star Wars fan, but I can't assume that everyone who's listening is a Star Wars fan. So here's, 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 the, here's the skinny on this. The original Death Star battle did not include a countdown to extinction for the Rebels. The original Death Star battle did not include a, we're almost to the Rebel base and we'll be able to blow them up. There was no ticking clock. And that was introduced in the editing process. Most of the accounts that I've read about it say, state that it was Marsha Lucas who came up with this particular innovation that she said, we need something here that's going to raise the stakes. Because she said, like, when, when Harrison Ford flies in and saves the day, when the Millennium Falcon shows up, you need the audience to cheer. The stakes were too low because it was just these ships were going and they were attacking the Death Star. And if they lost, well, then a bunch of them were dead. But it wasn't the end of the rebellion. So the editors took footage from other moments in the film and spliced it together along with these animations of, you know, computer readouts showing that the Death Star was getting closer to the rebel base. And that heightened that tension incredibly. 
I, I try to imagine the end of the film without that. And I, I'm like, okay, yeah, that would have fallen flat. So, it, you know, the ending of Star Wars, we might say, was saved in the edit. I don't know that the whole film was saved in the edit. Because as I say, there's a lot that was already there. And if you don't have the initial content to work with, you can't really fix things in the edit. Finally, montage is often seen, once again, Linton Davies, seen to be where editors are most free to be creative, to ignore certain laws of continuity in order to prioritize feeling and emotion. To prioritize feeling and emotion. And we should never forget this when we're analyzing a film. Remembering that a filmmaker's goal, most of the time, is to make us feel something more than anything else. It's rare that movies are about us having some great thinking moment. It's more about hitting us in our emotional centers. At every opportunity, Hirsch cuts away from the final battle to focus on Tarkin or Princess Leia. And he talks about a three-shot pattern. So it's rebel ships, then Leia, and usually it's like rebel ship, somebody explodes, they've lost one of their guys, cut to Leia, she looks concerned, cut to Tarkin, he looks like a robot, he doesn't care, he's impassive, and there's this three-shot pattern that's repeated five times throughout the sequence, and that's the thing I love about analyzing editing, is that once you get in and you start taking screenshots of certain moments in the film and then timing out how long the sequence is, or looking for repetitions, it begins to be a bit like really deep dive poetry analysis. Uh, this three-shot pattern is repeated five times throughout the sequence and is an excellent example of montage editing combining images to create an impression far greater than the sum of its individual parts because any of those things taken in and of themselves doesn't convey the same thing that putting all three of those together does. And that's what they saw in the, the early edit is that the Death Star battle without Leia, without Tarkin, wasn't as good. Because look at the movie again, and you see Tarkin right before the thing blows up. It's almost like, hey, let's remember this monster right before he gets obliterated. And it's great because it's, it's, it's about that audience reaction, right? It's about the audience sitting there and going, oh no, they've lost another ship. And then Leia mirroring that for us, right? Quite often actors are mirroring the experience that we're supposed to be having as a viewer and then cut to Tarkin and we're like, oh, I just, I, they need to get rid of him. And then they do, finally. And so this idea of editing, combining images to create an impression far greater than the sum of its individual parts, being able to cut a movie together in a way that generates emotions and knowing that the original footage that they have here, I mean, all they did was they, they went and did the, the, those animated sequences that showed the Death Star getting closer and then they did some voiceovers that made sure that we understood that that was happening. But the footage itself already existed. They'd shot all that. It was all in the can but it couldn't elicit the same emotional response that the arrangement of these shots could. And that's the power of editing. And using uh, Star Wars as an example of editing, the reason I chose it isn't just because of those Academy Awards. The reason I chose it isn't just because I'm a fanboy. The reason I chose it is because of Linton Davies' study and the way that he uh, identifies how editing could improve what we ended up with on the screen in the end. All right, next week, we come to the final film of our series with Gravity. And we'll be looking at the cinematic language of sound. I look forward to seeing you again. Until then, I'm Mike Pershawn. This is Triple Bladed Sword. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>